Good day, everybody, and welcome to this month's episode of Cliff Notes on the Global Manufacturing Picture. I'm Cliff Waldman. I'm the host of this show, one of many on Manufacturing Talk Radio. If you missed last month's episode, you may have noticed that uh, things have changed a little bit here. We are now a video program, and that's very exciting. It's a good opportunity for me. It's a good opportunity, I hope, for you. We've been able to show things, do different things, have interesting conversations with guests that you'll actually be able to see. I enjoyed podcasting, but I think this is going to expand our capabilities greatly. The next episode, for our November episode, we're going to have a, a very interesting guest. And I'll tell you about him at the end of this program. Two days after I record this show, I'm off to the Midwest, Chicago, Kansas City, um, to do a speaking tour. I'm speaking to a number of manufacturing groups who are very intently interest, into, interested, very intensively interested in what's going on with a very difficult global economic picture. And while we have many, many topics that we want to talk about, that I will be talking about, the, the global economic outlook is absolutely paramount in our um in, in our list of things to talk about now. It hasn't been this difficult, certainly since the financial crisis of 2008 and 2009. And we are breaking multi-decade records on a number of very difficult challenges. So before I'm off on my speaking tour, I thought I would share with you some insights that I've developed for my upcoming audiences on uh, the global manufacturing picture. Now. It, Global anything is complicated. And I always tell my audiences, I always will tell my audiences that when you have a complicated subject, when you have a very global subject, the best way is to divide and conquer, to really divide it up into digestible pieces and have a plan for conquering the world. Because that's what we have to do when we talk about the, uh, the economic challenge of the day. So here's what we're going to do. I'm going to set the scene. How did we get into this mess? Where, where did all this come from? We see the Fed raising interest rates. We see markets quick uh, quavering. We see we see you know great concerns about unemployment, dislocation, all that kind of thing. How did we get into this? And we'll talk a little bit about this. Then I'll talk about a good story: labor markets for workers, certainly a very good story. For employers, a more difficult story. Then we'll bring in the uh, the dragon villain of the day, whatever whatever your uh, preference is, inflation. And we'll talk about Fed policy and the dollar, all the things related to inflation on a uh, domestic and a global level. We will um, we'll talk about global tremors. This isn't just a U.S. story. And we'll say, well, let, let's try to predict the ending. How is this story going to end? And What's the world going to look like? I think most importantly, in many ways, for um, for corporate boardrooms, what's the world going to look like when we reach safe ground? And eventually, we will. So let's, let's set the scene. In the past couple of years, we've had a list of, of dislocations and um, emergencies and crises. Like, again, we have not seen certainly since the financial crisis, and maybe in many ways, this is a more difficult situation, even than the financial crisis was. 21st century seems to be full of crises, uh, but this one at this time 
seems to be a confluence of a number of difficult things that really have been building over the years. We had a trade war in 2019. That began a problem which, um, which continues today, and that is supply chain dislocations. Of course, we have the pandemic, a once a century, a dangerous virus that just stopped the earth for a couple of years, years. Supply chain disruptions, you know about those, you're feeling them and understanding them probably better than I or any other economist can. Um, labor market disruptions have been mysterious, have been difficult, good for labor, not so good for employers because you have the problem of getting labor and that's that's been very difficult. Then we'll, of course, we'll talk about inflation and we'll talk about the worst war in Europe in 75 years, quite a time, the worst pandemic in a century, the worst inflation in 40 years, the worst war in Europe, the most dangerous, the most difficult war in Europe in 75 years all coming, all coming at the same time. That's, you know, it shouldn't be a surprise that a global economic crisis um, is upon us. Uh, let's talk about the job market. We shut the door on the economy in March and April of 2020 when a very dangerous virus began circulating in the United States. We lost more than 20, about 22 million jobs in two months. But then as a result of the tremendous fiscal stimulus and the tremendous monetary stimulus that was thrown at that, the economy came roaring back more than even the most optimistic people could have predicted. And that created a huge gap in the labor market. We have enormous labor demand, but labor supply, not so much. It's been difficult getting people back into the labor market. We've had some increase in the labor force participation rate, which is the percent of workers uh, either working or looking for work has been actually falling since 2000 with the, the baby boomers starting to retire. It fell off a cliff um, during the pandemic and it's been coming back somewhat, but not that much. And it's still below its pre-pandemic level. So labor supply remains very, very difficult. And that, of course, you know, creates a very tight labor market situation. And that's, that's, you know, feeding into a number of things. So for workers, certainly a very good labor market, but then we entered, entered the dragon inflation. Now inflation has come to us and it's the worst spike in inflation in 40 years. Many people around today don't know what this is. They've never experienced anything because you'd have to go back to the late 70s and early 80s to really know what it's like to live with accelerating prices like we are, are dealing with now. Well, why did it happen? First of all, tight labor markets have contributed to it. Second of all, monetary policy that has been unusually easy since the end of the financial crisis. This, shouldn't, this didn't begin with the pandemic. What the pandemic did do was create massive spending. And it's understandable, it's, it, the, you know, the world was really shutting down. Massive spending, massive monetary um, stimulus. Then the Fed was late to the game. They should have seen the inflation coming six or seven months before they did. They were late to recognize the inflation and they were certainly late to act on it. All that conspired to give us an inflation that 
is extremely difficult, but it's really important to understand that it's not just a U.S. problem. Many other countries have inflation problems that in some ways are worse than the U.S. Tremendous inflation problems in the U.K., for example. We've seen what the yesterday, what the instabilities did politically in the U.K. Massive inflation, jaw-dropping inflation through much of Europe, in Canada. It's, it's a tremendous Western surge of price acceleration that is destabilizing the global economy. Now, it's gone. It, let's talk about the Fed. And, and, you know, all eyes are on the Fed. They realize that they came too late and now they're, it's the typical problem. You come late to the game and you try to make up for your tardiness by doing too much too fast. Now, whether it's too much too fast, that remains to be seen but they certainly have been extremely aggressive in raising their target for the federal funds rate. The federal funds rate is the rate that banks charge each other for overnight loans, by the way. And it's, it's sort of a, a measure of the liquidity of the ease with which liquidity flows through the banking system. The Fed doesn't set it. It's constantly talked about being set, but they target it and they try to talk, target it through their open market operations. This is why the, the central policy making body of the Federal Reserve is called the Federal Open Market Committee. Now, this is, they are tightening policy uh, tremendously. One thing that that's doing that is critical for the world is that it is creating a huge, it created a huge spike in the dollar. By many measures, by one critical measure, the dollar is at a 20-year high. It's at a 20-year high against a basket of, of, a wide basket of currencies that it trades against. That means, in effect, that we are exporting our inflate, at least some of our inflation to the rest of the world, because with the dollar being so high, U.S. goods are um, much more expensive to Japanese customers, to European customers, to any non-U.S. customers, because it costs more in their currency to buy a dollar, and therefore the, the uh, goods that are made in the U.S. are more costly to non-U.S. customers. That's difficult. That's creating not just economic havoc, but financial havoc. And again, we saw that in the UK. So it's a time of great instability. Instability. Um, rapid rise in interest rates, rapid rise in the dollar. And we're seeing, you know, so, I mean, is the, is the Fed policy working in the United States or isn't it? Well, certainly in housing, we've seen, you know, it, uh, probably the most, not surprising, it's probably the most interest rate sensitive um, sector. And we've seen a sharp fall in, uh, you know, in housing demand. Now, housing supply is still, uh, is still short also. So you would hope that house prices would fall dramatically. That hasn't happened yet. I expect that it will, but this has all been quite slow. And what makes that a little disconcerting and difficult is that the Fed is now absolutely 100% focused on the inflation fight. And with housing prices still not responding in the way that they want to, even though house demand is, um, housing demand has pulled back, the fear is that the Fed is just going to keep going. And even if they crash the economy into a wall, they are going to want to keep going until they really start to see inflation come back. And the way they're right, well, if inflation is unstable, if it's accelerating, then the long-term uh, prospects for the economy 
are bleak. We cannot have economic stability and therefore economic growth if inflation stability is not there. If inflation keeps going, so they are at this point, they are correct. Uh, but it is making people nervous that they're willing to take a difficult short-term global um, U.S. and global um, economic situation in order to cure uh, an inflation that, frankly, let's let's be honest, they were late to the party to you know to start moving on. So, well, what's what's going to happen with all this? Where where are we going with all this? I would say, you know. First, first of all, I think there's a better and even chance. And you've heard every forecaster give you uh, uh, their forecast. Uh, I'll give you mine. There's certainly a better than even chance that the U.S. is going to hit some kind of recession. It's very unpredictable the, uh, uh, how deep a recession uh, will be. But the fact that we will have a pullback and actual decline in output in the economy, I, I think, is really pretty short. One good indicator of that, and there are many, admittedly, one good indicator of that is the yield curve, and the yield curve has gone negative. The yield curve is a, is, is a good thing to pay attention to now because it has been a pretty good, it really, going back decades, it has been a pretty good leading indicator of recession, although, although it, it's you know, the timings that it could be, it could uh, an inverted yield curve can tell you that a recession is coming in two months, or it can tell you that it's coming in two years. What is it, however? It's important. What is it, and why is it a good indicator of a recession? Well, you have to remember that uh, the bond market um, has a term structure. The longer dated maturities have higher interest rates because investors are going to want to get paid more for locking up their money up uh, for longer periods of time. It, uh, that First of all, it, it separates them from their money for a longer period of time. It's also riskier. More things can go wrong in 10 years uh, than in two years. So the normal course is to have an upward sloping um, interest rate structure that where the 10 year, the five year pays a higher interest rate than two year, the 10 year pays a higher interest rate than the five year, et cetera. Sometimes they invert, which is an abnormal situation. Because what people are tell, telling us is that I'm when they invert, that's because bond investors are telling us I'm worried about the short term future. So I'm going to put my money into longer dated uh, maturities because I feel like there's a storm coming now, but it'll be solved sometime. So they'll put more money into the 10 year uh, than, let, uh, than into the five year. That raises the price of 10 year bonds pushes interest rates down relative to the shorter data maturities and you get um, an inverted yield curve. Tends to work pretty well for forecasting recessions, but um, the leads are very variable over time. No, none of these indicators are um, quite frankly perfect. Um, what about the world? Well, I think the world is, is headed for a, at best a slowdown and very possibly a downturn. All of what's going on with the Russia-Ukraine war, with the energy crisis um, that Europe is going to be facing, especially as we get in, uh, into the winter, uh, with oil prices, with inflation, uh, etc. cetera, uh, the, the IMF is predicting that by 2023, we'll have very, very little growth, maybe a half percent growth in GDP. It could, it could just as well be a, a decline of a half percent. Europe is going to be pushed 
to the brink of recession and, and very possibly into recession. There's no formal definition of a, a recession outside of the United States, but GDP could just, they're predicting a very, very slight increase in GDP, a major slowdown for 2023. That, that could be a decline in, in GDP. China has its own set of problems. Slow, COVID lockdowns, demographics, um, the upheaval in the property sector, which uh, was inevitable. I visited China in 2006 and walking through Shanghai, I saw um, every available inch, inch of space was gonna be built on, even though there wasn't a lot of occupancy. And you walk away with the sense that this can't last forever. Well, it lasted a long time, but now like everything else, it, it's, you know, it's coming to fruition. So just, you know, we're gonna have a major slowdown in China. And it's some of it's secular because of demographics. China is a rapidly aging society. It's aging more than most developing countries would at its stage of development. So big slowdown in China, big slowdown in Europe, possibly you know a contraction um, in European GDP. I think that's that's on the cards. The United States certainly headed for a recession of some kind, and the world doesn't look too good. It doesn't look great. We will get through it. We have been through crises before. We will have crises again. This one is very global in scope, and that's that. By the way, is one thing way in which the world is changing. You said it. it we're going to have less and less time when we're talking about a U.S. recession, unless there's something really strange that goes on. Whenever we get into a, a, a circumstance of economic weakness, uh, the links that are afforded to the world by financial markets and by supply chains are um, are going to make every, every event a global event, I predict. It's going to be less and less sensible to talk about domestic economics and more and more sensible to talk about the global um, economic outlook. So really, that, that makes everything more difficult, more challenging, also interesting. And, you you know, the, if everybody thinking about the world is, is not such a bad thing. I mean, what happened in the United Kingdom took our markets here because might as well be the same country. That's the way the world, and at least the same economy. And that's the way the world is working these days. Well, okay, so we get to stable ground. What's the world going to look like? Well, number one, we're going to be in a, a you know a period where defense spending is going to be back in a Cold War posture, thanks in part to Vladimir Putin, to uh, to China's belligerence related to uh, particularly to Taiwan. We are going to be back uh, into you know a different kind of thinking, a, a, a non-peacetime thinking with defense spending. And that that um, that's going to be matter a lot to our to certain manufacturing industries that uh, we'll see uh, we'll see some benefit from that. It's a terrible thing, but it's going to create demand in certain manufacturing industries um, that uh, have seen only moderate demand may start to see uh, strong demand. Interest rates are going to be normalized. I I, I used to. The, past couple of months, I've been talking about a period of higher interest rates, but really, you have to remember that even as the Fed started to quickly move on this inflation, they were starting from essentially zero policy rates that were kept in place probably way too long in, in the wake of the financial crisis, which you know ended in something like 2010, 2011. We had much too long a period of as, as difficult as the financial and as frightening, frankly, as the financial crisis was. 
we kept interest rates too low for too long. That so the the um this the birth of this inflation wasn't two years ago, it was probably six or seven years ago. So we're gonna see more normalized interest rates. We're gonna see um, supply chains changing. We're already starting to see smaller companies, smaller manufacturers talk, talking about um, finding more domestic sources of supply. This tangle that we've had in supply chains really has um, upset a lot of companies, upset a lot of people. I'm gonna start to think more domestic with supply chain. I don't think, I'm, I'm gonna hold to my view that I don't think supply chains are gonna be totally brought in from the globe. There's too much to be gained out there, but I do think there's gonna be some move toward domestic uh, supply chains. So those are those are a few of the, um, the benefits that I'm gonna be talking on my Midwestern tour uh, of the global economy for a number of manufacturing groups. I hope that some of you listening to this are going to um, be there. Look forward to talking to you, look forward to talking about this. Now let's talk about, um, our guests for the November show. Uh, now that we've gotten up and running with our visual format, it's time to bring a guest in. And, I'm, and Mr. Michael Ryan is going to join me. He's an economics director at um, what is now S&P Global. I happen to have heard him speak at a conference in St. Louis a few weeks ago, and he's doing a lot of very intensive research in the European energy um, crisis. That is going to be a bigger uh, an energy crisis that has come from a number of things, but certainly from the uh, the Russia Ukraine war. That's going to be a bigger and bigger part of the risk story in the global economy, as particularly as we get into winter. There's a number of interesting and, and critical insights to offer to it. As to that, he will be our first guest on the, uh, the new video Cliff Notes program. Looking forward to having him. Looking forward to seeing you there. Thank you very much, and I hope to see some of you um, in Chicago and Kansas City as I go out to speak. Thank you very much. This podcast is a part of the C-Suite Radio Network. For more top business podcasts, visit c-suiteradio.com. Thank you.